Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. As anyone either connected to the military or who has read a headline in recent months can tell you, the United States Army and the United States Armed Forces generally are facing a serious recruiting crisis. A shortfall of nearly 25% in the past year and anticipated shortfalls of similar or larger magnitude in the future will be too large to be covered up by improvements in retention, which is a problem all its own. Absent a strategy to reverse these negative trends, the future of U.S. strategy and the future of the all-volunteer force may be in jeopardy. Could it be that what we have here is a failure to communicate? A central concern of trying to figure out how to appeal to younger generations uh, is at the center of this recruiting crisis. This younger generation may or may not respond to older messages or older appeals. Our guest today on A Better Peace, Lieutenant Colonel Antonio Perez, has approached the question of recruitment from the generational angle, writing an article entitled, quote, Old People Don't Know How to Talk to Young People, close quote, as part of his work here at the Army War College. We're delighted to have him with us today to discuss his work and its implications for the future. Lieutenant Colonel Tony Perez is a student in the class of 2023 at the U.S. Army War College. Commissioned as a field artillery officer in 2001, he has served with the 25th Infantry Division at Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, and the 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, Georgia. A veteran of multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as other command and staff positions, his most recent assignment was as the G3 of 1st Army Division West, and his next assignment will be as Director of the Fire Support Testing Directorate at Fort Sill, Oklahoma. But for today, welcome to A Better Peace, Tony Perez. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. So, Tony, what made you want to get into this thorny question of recruitment and generational communication? Well, we were chatting earlier and uh, I had mentioned that I'm getting closer to retirement than I am to commissioning. I have a particular interest in the organization, um, especially as I get older. And uh, as a steward of it, I, I just want to see it succeed. Um, and, and so those that is really my only interest. Um, and that really drove my my research. Right. And and you did this research within the context of a special program at the Army War College. Could you tell us about that program? Sure. Um, well, it was a it was an elective, um, and it was uh, online presence and publishing for senior leaders. Uh, and what it allowed me to do is is realize the impact and the effect that social media and the things that we put out on the internet, which is ever increasing. <laughs> these days have a, have a significant impact on our career and either, and even perceptions about who we are as an army. And, and that dynamic I think is relatively new. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I got to say when I read your, uh, your draft article, and when we talked about this topic, I reflect on the fact that I have a 16 year old son 
Um, <laughs> and now I got into the parenting business a little late, so maybe the gap is a little wider than they would be for somebody else with a teenager. But when I think about what kind of messages are going to appeal to him, they may indeed be different from anything that might have appealed to me. Um, so what is it that what is it that you think makes say Gen Z, however we want to describe them, and Generation Alpha, whoever's coming next? What do you think makes them different from previous generations of potential recruits? Uh, yeah, I have a I have a seven year old <laughs> son, and I run into the same obstacles that you do. Um, I was pondering this question as I was writing it. Uh, I I think uh, there's a technic technological resilience and a technological tolerance that uh, a younger generation has that I don't. Mm. Um, if I encounter a website or a piece of technology and it gives me a hard time and it's not directly intuitive, um, I stop. And I tend to use that within the bounds of the getting started guide that is provided in a, in a, in a package. Uh, I don't think Generation Z or to a larger extent Generation Alpha is content with that. Mm. Um, and through that, I think there's a couple things that arise out of that is uh, in a sense of individuality and, uh, you know, perhaps a sense of wanting to, you know, make an impact in a different type of world than, than, we've, than we were used to and, and, and we grew up in. So, yeah, I, th I think that what, that's what makes them unique. Yeah. Well, and I, I've been trying to think about various angles on this question as well, right? That, uh, you know, I was not an only child. My son is an only child. And I wonder if that changes the experience, right? We are talking about uh, Gen Z, uh, the, this Generation Z and Generation Alpha are often the children of Gen Xers or later, um, and especially of Gen Xers, right? A smaller generational cohort to begin with. And so we're, we're talking about a smaller group of young people who have, perhaps have more choices in front of them. And so somebody has to try to make this decision to join the military an appealing choice in itself. And, you know, how could we do that? I mean, when you think about, you know, what made you decide to join the army, Tony? It was, it was my dad. Um, and, you know, I hate to say that is uh, because we often, you know, hate to say that our parents were right. But, you know, he, <laughs> he pointed me in the direction of the Army and he said it was good for him. Mm -hmm. And I decided to go into an ROTC office one day and the rest is history. Um, in order to, I think, get Generation Z and Generation Alpha to join, we can't rely on that. Um, it's unsustainable because that that pool of talent or that familial familiarity is only shrinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so there has to be a longer term uh, kind of reservoir that, that that we can grab from. Um, one of those that come that leaps out on the page to me is uh, an effort to kind of reduce the financial incentives that have been the hallmark of our recruiting process. Not to get rid of it because it's proven effective, but it may have. Uh, outlasted its relevance. Um, and I know this may be a larger larger discussion about uh, the nation and national service and whatnot, but establishing an ethos of service um, that is multi-generational and can kind of sustain the, the cyclical nature of whatever uh, might come in the economy or uh, political cycles or, or whatnot. So I think that is the that is our biggest challenge. So I understand if, if I understand what you're saying, one of the issues here is that it's not just a matter of figuring out 
more and more cash to get people to do it. The cash is nice. Cash has a purpose, but we need to do more than just uh, think that by offering more money, we're going to get people to do these things. Well, in fact, is uh, with a lot of things, is the more you offer structure incentives, then you often do more harm than you than you do good. Uh, one might reason that um, if the army um, offers a, a, a enlistment bonus, uh, why would I enlist today when I can enlist tomorrow for a little bit more money? Mm-hmm. In fact, the army has in, raised its enlistment bonuses um, from the '90s. Uh, you know, I think it was uh, an average of about eight thousand uh, dollars for whatever specialty was offered. If you go on the website, uh, the uh, Army website today, they offer up to fifty thousand dollars for certain specialties. Uh, and I don't know what specialties those are. Um, <laughs> that's re- we're talking real money, especially for an eighteen-year-old sure, listing in the service, that, right? That's significant. Yeah. Uh, what it could drive a lot of people to to dis- to find out now is that. Hey, what are, if somebody's offering me that much money, how bad is it really (laughs) in the service? Um, And so you communicate things and you signal uh, ideas with the type of incentives Mm. that you offer. Um, And one of those signals might be that, you know, this is, this is the uh, oasis or this is a refuge for those who can most be helped by economic, uh, an economic windfall like $50,000 or some other bonus. And incidentally, that is kind of the reasoning that, that targeting or that, uh, that uh, perception that we only, that the army is a, is a, a refuge for those who are less, uh, who, are, who are impoverished mm-hmm. or who are less educated. That was really the catalyst for, for the 1973 transition to the all-volunteer force. Right. So what's old is new again. Yeah. Well, it's, it's exactly – I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I was thinking. Right? Is we're, we're, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force. And from the beginning, right, the, the same concerns sort of hung over the decision to go for the all-volunteer force was you know, who's going to sign up? What's it going to take to get them to do it? Um, will the army have to lower its standards in order to meet recruiting goals? Um, and of course, it connects directly to the question of what we're what what do we do with the army? What do we do with the armed forces? Right, and that's where I, I think about this as a strategic question. Um, if we if we have always been able to assume that we could always get the numbers that we needed, then we could make larger strategic decisions um, just on the assumption we'll always have enough people. But what if it turns out, what if, what if the number of people or the shrinking number of people puts limitations on our strategic decisions, right? That's, a, that's something I think people were afraid of in 1973. We've been able to avoid it up to now. Um, and do you have, in, in, in the paper, but also in your, in your overall thinking, what are some of the things that you would do differently or that you would encourage the, the recruiting to do differently in order to to address this problem. I won't say to solve this problem because this is going to take a lot to solve it, but just to address this problem. So I think right, o- right away is you got to assume, uh, don't throw anything away. Mm. Right. Um, so we just have to be open to uh, uh, realizing that there are other tactics that might work to attract people to the service. So I'm a big sports fan and the, I think the one constant that you that you see in sports is those coaches and managers that are most successful 
are not the ones who throw away their experience or throw away the experience of their coaching staff, but are readily adaptable to uh, a, a changing playing field. Uh, and the new ways that people think they can be utilized for success. Um, the way the Army uh, views a young person enlisting and serving in the Army might not be the way that young person views uh, the best use of their talents in the Army. Okay, uh, that's a starting point for a conversation, I think. Um, but I think that we do have to be aware of that. Um, so this is, if, 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 if I was thinking about that with regard to the education at the War College, right? We talk a lot today about tailorable education, right? So we want to give people choices, let people have electives. And so you're suggesting that the armed forces should be a little more flexible even once they bring somebody in to help them find their place within the service? Sure. Uh, one of the things um, that had been uh, identified in a uh, in the last year's Deloitte survey about what millennials and Gen Z want is uh, the need for or the desire for a flexible work environment, maybe even a hybrid work environment. And we saw a little bit of that come out of COVID um, in our experience there, but we did realize the utility of that in some circumstances. Um, there are some people out there that are inhibited by either familial concerns or geographical concerns or, or, or whatever those might be. Uh, is it beyond um, is it beyond reasonable or is it reasonable to suggest that if if somebody has a, a, a career field or a job that is administrative or customer service in nature that they could work for home for a few days out of the week or uh, and only and only kind of visit the unit uh, as needed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't think that's that's an unreasonable um, unreasonable model to to assume and, and it allows people to serve in the capacity that they can serve. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I, I, I think and it might be a it's more I think more of a political issue um, but I really think is when we when we start to talk about capitalizing and leveraging on people's willingness to serve mm -hmm. uh, rather than their position within our society and I'll just um, you know, I'll just come out and say it is, you know, citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, that is right now a stipulation or a residence within the country. That is a stipulation of service. Uh, but I think to uh, our most recent experiences, uh, you know, like with Operation Allies Welcome, there were people that, that starved to come to this country that had served with America prior or the American Armed Forces. Uh, and I'm not saying this is the solution, but how do we grasp or how do we leverage or capitalize on that enthusiasm for wanting to be part of this country and even part of the service? They, their experience drove them, their experience with the armed forces drove them to uh, endure a lot of hardship to come. So I, I think it's only in our best interest to explore those avenues. Yeah. That, that I'm glad you brought this up because I've been wrestling with this question as well, right? Is we are uncomfortable for a variety of reasons with the idea that we would offer, say, offer citizenship as a, as a benefit that comes with agreeing to serve in the armed forces, right? There's a lot of sort of sketchy historical uh, implications there. Um, sure. But at the same time, right? If someone is showing their willingness 
since usually we assume, we we appeal to the the desire we we appeal to the spirit of citizenship of our current citizens to serve um why couldn't we say that a willingness to serve is itself an indication that someone is potentially worthy of citizenship uh you know that's a you know in, as we deal with you know you want to talk about recruiting is one hard nut to crack right migration is another hard nut to crack and and think about american politics but it is an interesting question so you say your dad served in the army was your dad did your dad serve was he, was he a career army person or did he serve for a brief time as a young man uh, no, I think he was in for about five mm-hmm. years. Uh, he, uh, he served in Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, with the first cavalry division. Wow. And, um, you know, after that he came home and, uh, pursued education and family life. So. Right. Which, which is also something that, you know, the idea that we have people who, that they show that you can make the decision to serve as a young person and then go back and serve society more broadly afterwards as well. Well, so, um, you know, I write about this mm-hmm. a little bit in the article that I submitted is kind of these, uh, you know, I, I write about some perceptions and psychological or ideational perceptions of, of, of folks towards the armed forces. And, you know, we probably need to do a little bit better in um, marketing or advertising the benefits that come of service. Um, everybody that retires or gets out of the army is not either is not all psychologically and mentally scarred. While there are some people who deal with that on a day-to-day basis, that's a that's a percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, most that retire go on to be very successful in whatever field that they choose to uh, participate in um, or to pursue. And I think that's really valuable. And being more aggressive in um, in advertising and marketing that and, and uh, to, to young people across the country, I think, I think is, is again, only in our best interest. It's, it's interesting you bring this up because I was also thinking that, you know, how do schools recruit, right? Schools recruit by emphasizing what their alumni have done. And so, um, and yet the military does not, at least as far as I know, right? It does not make the alumni a big part of their recruiting pitch, right? So in other words, if people feel like, well, I got to make the decision when I'm 18 years old to do this forever, right? People will shrink back from that. Or if they think I'm making a decision to do this and it's going to leave me broken, right? That's also not a terribly appealing thing. But if you can make the argument with evidence that people can choose this period of service in their lives, they can do good things for their country. They can, um, and, and that it then does good things for them afterwards. If we could find out a way to sell that, uh, that would be, that would be a, a positive thing. When you, um, do you remember, and you know, you're a little younger than I am, so maybe you can remember that far back, Tony. Do you remember walking into that recruiter's office and saying, hey, do you have any information on Army ROTC? Or did, did your father literally have his hand on your shoulder when you walked into that, into that room? <laughs> uh, no, I think um, I, I do remember. Uh, I, it was a, a major house. He was a oh. military police officer, right. and he was the uh, assistant PMS at the time. And I just walked in there and uh, he was wearing at that time was a the green class piece. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, yeah, I said, hey, my name's Tony. I, I would I would love to um, to see what this is about. Next thing I know, I'm on a on a plane to Fort Knox, Kentucky. <laughs> um, and, you know, they were offering me a scholarship, uh, which is another great thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are so many there are so many young people out there struggling with college debt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. The United States Army and the military has been paying for college 
since I've since I joined, and I'm sure before that. Totally. Um, I, I think that is a that is another thing that would attract attract service members that perhaps we just don't communicate enough to. Recently, Major General Fink, uh, he's the head of Army Marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently said about a year ago, the Army has everything that Gen Z wants in, a, in an employer. They just don't know it mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and so for you, right? So am I correct? Were you from California, Tony? I am. And so, and, and right. the army didn't just send you any old place to college either. Right. You know, you happen to go to what, no. what some people say is the best. Well, I don't want to get in trouble with my friends who went to Stanford, but let's say one of the best <laughs> universities in the state of California, right? The university of California. Sure. Berkeley. What was it like being an ROTC at Berkeley? Since Berkeley is for, for a certain type of people who consider themselves strong supporters of the military, Berkeley is like enemy sure. territory. What was it like being a, being an ROTC at Berkeley? Um, you know, I think uh, there's probably more of a uh, reputation mm-hmm. that the school has than actually materialize. Mm-hmm. I think there was probably one person who came in um, and while we were training on, I think, the one rope bridge kind of mm-hmm. gave us some grief. There was one person who came into the office during the don't ask, don't tell fiasco. Um, but I think all in all is is people understood when they when they saw us walking around in uniform like they, i think they were just more curious mm-hmm. than anything mm-hmm. else um some an institution's reputation uh and a time that existed you know in the 1960s or early 70s doesn't necessarily it didn't transfer to the late 90s or early 2000s sure. and so you know that's a great point that you bring up to characterize an institution or organization or young people, right, relevant to our conversation is as just being totally consumed by their phone or totally consumed by this perception that we have of them is completely unfair. Mm-hmm. So we have to take them as individuals. You know, my experience, I had an individual experience at, at Berkeley that was, that is quite often surprising to most people, mm-hmm. you know, and I won't hold you, um, I won't hold you accountable for having friends at Stanford. That's okay. <laughs> I should warn um, you, my department chair is a graduate of Stanford. So like I have, you know, this is, this, this has career implications for me, but that's all right. And you know, one of my best uh, not friends, at all. that's all right. Yeah. Another great institution. And we would often go to Stanford or Stanford cadets would, would, would come to, to Berkeley mm-hmm. and we train together. So, um, you know, I think, you know, on the base level, you you're, you have a, an understanding of people, of institutions, of organizations. And that base level, sometimes that base understanding can sometimes be destructive. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you perpetuate that, then you are only buying into it um, and creating an institutional trap right. is what I call it, where you're trying to sustain an image. But that image is not necessarily always productive. See, and, and towards your final. Yeah, end. so it's it's a matter not only of learning new things, but it also of deciding what old things you need to unlearn in order to make things better. Correct. What'd you major in at, at Berkeley as an ROTC student? <laughs> uh, I was a rhetoric major, um, and that's basically English, right? So, right. Um, so what what a less fancy school would probably call communications. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if it's fancy or not, but uh, 
that rhetoric that was uh and you know there there might have been some uh, grade point uh restrictions on there some minimums that were the uh that i met so, that's legit too i mean but I, yeah I, but basically you can be a rhetoric major in college on your rotc scholarship and become a field artillery officer and g3 to a sure to a, uh, to a well, command. well i would so i I was also a professor of military science at Fort Valley State University. Oh, you were. So you so you you gave back essentially to ROTC after graduation. Oh, I tried yeah. to. Uh, we'll see if the the proof comes out. But it was interesting. Is um, you know, ROTC, um, you know they they gave us some recruiting tools to uh, attract potential officers. Mm-hmm. Um, Fort Valley State University is an HBCU. Mm-hmm. And I found that some of those recruiting tools or some of those messages didn't necessarily speak to the students that attended that HBCU. Um, so we had to figure out how to communicate to them in the right way um, and to demonstrate the benefits of, um, of being in the service. Mm-hmm. And I'll be quite honest, is some of those were financial benefits. Sure. So again, I'm not saying that financial incentive of the military is the wrong thing to do, um, but it's not the it's not the panacea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, quite frankly, what what really attracted them when I showed, um, you know, all the benefits that could be in the army was oh, I get 30 days of vacation a year, and I get that right like right when I start. Yeah, you do right, um, and so you know it's. It, and that can be tied to a financial benefit, but it's the way you couch that. They they didn't perceive that as a financial benefit. They just thought of that as a perk, like, oh, I get to go on vacation. Right, right. So and, and it's it's always hard, right? Because when you want to get people to do a job that you know is going to be difficult, parts of it are going to be very difficult. You also want to talk about the parts of it that are going to be attractive. And, and, sure. and how do you do that? You want to be completely honest with people about this is what it's going to take from you, but this is what you get from it. And to be able to have that kind of an honest conversation, I mean, I guess that's the the goal of every recruiter, the goal of every professor of military science is to be able to have those kinds of conversations with young people. Sure. Well, I, I really found as a as a professor of military science, I really found that, you know, I connected with um, my cadets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I also suggest that for recruiting, mm-hmm. um, that the Army expand maybe the career field of the professional recruiter. And I'll go back to that college analogy. Oh, yeah. You know, college football programs have recruiting staff that year over year develop, maintain that reservoir of talent that they can go back to uh, over and over again. And they they embed themselves or, or they're, they're, they're networked within the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's important. Too often, maybe we intervene at the point of entry into the Army rather than intervening at potentially within a certain type of neighborhood, those that age of a young person at which they might become ineligible for service. So I, I'm sure there's demographic data out there that, that points to a, a certain individual in a certain neighborhood may become involved with the law or drugs at, let's say, 15 or 16. Um, I think recruiters need to be to make their job easier. Um, and to facilitate their success is to identify those individuals at 15 or 16, uh, intervene uh, by providing uh, just presence, 
maybe investing in after-school programs or investing or, or being present within the community to keep that individual interested and eligible for service. So again, it's a long-term process that uh, sometimes we're not we're not comfortable with in the army, and that's for good reason. Um, but you know, it's an investment. Well, and and this takes us full circle back to the where this all starts. And if the idea is for people to feel as though they're members of a broader national community that re- that calls on them to serve, then the the institutions of service like the army need to reach out to those communities as well and say, yes, we are part of you. We're not taking you, we're not taking you out of your community to bring you into the army. We are integrating you and the and the army and the community together so that we feel this connection. And that, that those felt connections will make it more natural for people to choose to serve. I think you're exactly right. Yeah. Well, Tony, this has been this has been a very fun conversation. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time for today. But uh, I wish you luck with the paper. Um, I wish you luck with uh, with your next job and with finishing your year here at the War College. And good luck on the move to Oklahoma, Lieutenant Colonel Tony Perez. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You bet. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment to subscribe to A Better Peace because you should want to be part of this community on A Better Peace. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how other people can find out about us. We look forward to growing this community and we look forward to welcoming you to our next conversation. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com. Dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.